0: Welcome back to the Commission podcast. We've been out for a bit getting things ready for a big year, but we wanted to make sure we didn't miss the last couple talks from Revive. This one's a great one from Andy Palmer on being faithful with creation. Enjoy. Hello. Hello and welcome. Welcome to uh, Faithful with Creation. Yes, this is the right place. If you're looking for awesome cutlery, this is not it. Although we do have a set like them, so we're very grateful for that. Um, which will not be used in in the process of this seminar, I'm afraid. Um, There'll be people arriving late, no doubt. So what I'd love you to do, just to kick us off, turn to the person next to you, perhaps twos or threes where you are, and perhaps um, chat with them. Out of ten, how concerned are you with what's going on on the planet today? Environmental concerns, things like that. How concerned are you out of ten, and why? Okay, turn to the person next to you and chat about that just while we wait for the newcomers to rock in. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, we'll keep chatting about this over. It's just useless to know, I I expect some of us here today are perhaps very highly concerned. That's probably why you're here, maybe, and you're you're very concerned. Uh, Others perhaps really not concerned, perhaps wondering why on earth Commission is having a seminar on this subject. And maybe that's why you're here, to check out whether this is sound or not. I I don't know. Um, Hopefully, I want to persuade you that being concerned for creation is a godly thing to do. And, and how we hold that uh, intention uh, and actually in uh, compatible with uh, the Great Commission to go and tell people about Jesus Christ. Um, if you join us since the start, my name's Andy Palmer. I serve Christ Church uh, This is something I thought about and um, I hope that at the end we have time for Q&A. Um, so if we don't have time for Q&A at the end, if we run out of time, uh, do grab me afterwards. I hope to uh, answer your concerns. Shall I pray? Let me, let's bow our heads. Father God, thank you that you're a good, loving creator Help us, Lord, to know how best to understand this creation, which we're presently in. Help us to um, grow in our appreciation of you and all that you made, and to know how best to balance the various tensions and priorities that we face. And uh, we pray you'll give us wisdom and particularly attentiveness in this heat. In Jesus' name, amen. So, of course, there was a time when people thought this planet is slightly too big to fail. It's massive, isn't it? It's too big to fail. And yet nearly every week we're hit with headlines after headlines after headlines telling us, one way or another, that our planet is indeed failing. Climate is changing. Ice caps are melting. Sea levels are rising. Species are vanishing. Droughts and famines are increasing. And so as a result, people are dying. People are dying. And in fact, they're dying in the poorest places of the earth in general, all because of this climate change. Now, if you're here today and you're what you might describe yourself as a climate change denier, I'm not going to be going into the science of everything. Uh, if, if you're not persuaded of that, I'm, this summer I probably won't help you. Um, but it might help you from a theological angle, if not a scientific one. But, but I, I, was, I was terrified recently to read an article uh, which argued that by the year 2050, all the world's coral reefs will have disappeared. That's um, 20, I'm bad at maths, 27 years away, no coral reefs. is that tragic? They estimate in the same year, 2050, um, the sea, all the oceans and all the seas, they will contain more plastic by weight than actual marine animals. It's a tragedy, isn't it? Now, maybe those are pessimistic. I don't know. I can't measure that. But undeniably, we are the problem We are the problem. Um, Gus Speth is um, Dean of Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. He's a big cheese in the environmental world. He said this, I used to think that the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that 30 years of good science could address those problems. I was wrong. The top environmental problems are Selfishness, greed, apathy. And to deal with these, we need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. It's well observed, isn't it? And if you uh, follow the, uh, the G12 summits every now and then, the big nations gather together, all of them agree, yeah, we need to change. Um, everyone wants change. Uh, but no one really wants to lead the change because of the economic costs of changing in this area. Everyone's trying to do almost as little as possible <laughs> because of the economic fallout of the necessary changes. And I know some of you here work in, uh, in policy, in government, and this is attention, isn't it? How do we persuade people to act against their best economic interests for the long-term interests of the planet? Well, that's how the world's responding. How are churches responding to this threat? Well, can I suggest there's been something of a pendulum swing? Some churches um, are are pushing what we might call an environmental gospel. That's where they, they act as if this world is essentially all there is. And the creation mandate, Genesis 1.28, fulfill and subdue the earth, care for God's planet, that has almost come to replace God's great commission to go and make disciples. So many churches, when they talk about mission, they're talking about, concern for the planet, and, and, and so their, their good news is essentially hoping to do all the best we can to slow down the decay that we're seeing, to slow down the damage we're doing to the planet, which kind of seems inevitable. Uh, their good news is a bit hopeless, really, because it looks pretty bad. It's delaying the inevitable. Some churches are pushing an environmental gospel. Not many evangelical churches. In fact, the evangelical churches, we're, we're, most of us actually swung to the opposite extreme. And I'm going to suggest that most of our churches, not necessarily the ones represented here, but many of the churches I've been a part of, Bible-believing churches, have swung to what we might call a Gnostic gospel. Gnosticism was an early church false teaching, which kind of argued that matter doesn't matter. Physicality fit this, this chair here. This, this is a chair, it's made out of physical stuff. It doesn't matter because it's it's physical. What really matters is spiritual things. And there's an element of that in some uh, evangelical churches which basically says all that really matters is saving human souls. Bodies don't matter. Creation doesn't matter. It's all going to be burned up one day. Who cares? All that matters, the only thing that matters exclusively is saving human souls. And so if any we come across any teacher which talks about concern for the planet concern for creation we think well this is woke liberalism and we sort of raise an eyebrow perhaps hands off if you've been in a church which have taught something along those lines okay, <laughs> okay that's an encouraging few number um, i definitely have spent a, a long number of years in a church which taught exactly that and i think churches which take that line they kind of lack credibility They lack credibility because a lot of our non-Christian friends are really concerned about these things. And if we're not concerned, it kind of shows we're we're less loving of what God has made. Um, But also it lacks coherency. And hopefully this will persuade you if you're this way inclined here, here this afternoon. It lacks coherency because we're going to see the whole a big sweeping argument of the Bible is God's plan to redeem creation. So you've got the environmental gospel. Some evangelicals have swung to the opposite extreme. I'm bringing them the best example of this. I won't name the American pastor, but there's a famous American pastor who says, I believe in the new creation. That's why I drive an SUV. An SUV is like one of these enormous gas covering sports utility vehicles. They say, you know, who cares about this creation? Human souls. It lacks coherency, it lacks credibility. So I'd argue there's a central ground, a biblical gospel, the real gospel, uh, where yes, the Great Commission is loud and clear: go and make disciples. We need to save people, but it doesn't replace the um, creation mandate. Although we might argue it eclipses it. It, 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 it puts it to the to the background. But we'll think about that later. Um, what I want to do, and it, this might be slightly ambitious, what I want to do in the next 25 minutes is kind of to do a Bible overview of how God thinks about creation. Okay. And I'm aware it's hot, I'm aware it's the afternoon, and this is like the graveyard shift. If this was school, you know, we'd all be falling asleep. Um, and I'm grateful for the breeze. But what I'm hoping to do in the next 25 minutes is do a Bible overview of creation. But if even if you fall asleep in that, I just want you to bear with me on this one little illustration, this one story. Imagine a dad, it's, it's a hot afternoon like this. He's lazing on his sofa, he just wants to sleep, he's tired. And along comes a six year old. He thought he was napping, he wasn't. Six year old comes along, dad, dad, can you play with me? Can you play with me? Dad really doesn't want to play. He's knackered. He wants to sleep. And and, and dad says, oh, Can't you go playing? But I'm bored. Can you play with me? Can you play with me? Lazy dad doesn't do anything. This is not a true story. But he, Lazy Dad recognizes, he leans over and notices on the table is this old magazine. I don't know if it's this one, but it's magazine like it. And on the front of this magazine is a picture of the globe. And Lazy Dad, he just rips off the front cover of this magazine, tears it in hundreds of different pieces and says, here you go, son, there's some sellotape next door in the room. You know where it is. Just just go and, here's a puzzle. <laughs> go, and, go and fix the puzzle. That'll keep you busy. You know, it's a really hard puzzle. No way the six-year-old would be able to do it. There's too many swirling colors. It, it's too complicated for him. Frustratingly for this father though, five minutes later this little chap rocks back, fully sellotaped together picture of the globe. The dad is befuddled, how on earth did you do that? Oh, it's easy dad. On the backside of the image was a picture of a man. And all I had to do was sellotape together the picture of the man, and then I created the world again. That is the big thesis that we're gonna see the way in which God is going to repair this broken world is through redeeming broken mankind. That's the thesis. Now we're going to show you that from the Bible. Okay, This is the more complicated thesis. Just as creation fell with Adam, so creation will be redeemed through a second Adam for the benefit of all mankind united with him that's the thesis we'll be working on it'll be up on the screen all the way through okay if you have a bible turn with me we're in genesis 1 of course we always have to start there don't we every bible I you starts there and we're going to be going very fast otherwise um, we have time to apply this later so we see in the beginning don't we By the way, in the Bible, you have very few proof texts about recycling. You have very few proof texts about how much money you should give to environmental concerns. You have very few proof texts telling you how much energy your pastors and deacons should put into environmental concerns in your church. We have nothing like that. All we have is a Bible story. But I think that Bible story is going to speak to our spirit-led consciences and will help us make wise decisions. Okay, Genesis 1. We see God, creation has blessed Creation is blessed through mankind. God blesses creation through mankind. So, of course, um, famous uh, chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves along the ground. So again and again and again through chapter 1, God calls creation good. It is good. And he makes us as men and women as relational rulers in charge, responsible for stewarding uh, this world. And in the second creation account, in chapter two, we get even more of that. Um, Adam, I don't know if you knew this, but Adam's name, Adama, means ground. Why is he called ground, weird name for someone? It's because he was literally made up out of the ground. His job was to till the ground. And so that means what we're told is that the fate of the ground is bound up with Adam, who is the chief steward of the ground, the clues in the name. God considers creation to be good, and so he gives us a gardener. And Psalm 8 speaks much more about this, doesn't it? Humanity, we're utterly insignificant, and yet we're utterly dominant, God has put us over creation. Um, that's familiar, I'm sure you go. There you go, Adam over this beautiful world. But we all know what goes wrong. Um, we know what goes wrong. Because of course, over the page, creation is cursed with mankind. So chapter three, you know the story. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They disobey him. And as a result, they are cursed and exiled out of the garden. But more than that, creation is cursed with them. So, look with me at verse 17. And, and God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life thorns and thistles, it shall pay forth to you. So on and so on and so on. That ground Adam was made out of is now cursed, it's bleak. Creation falls with Adam. And yet, if you look back to the previous verse, verse 16, there is hope. There's a hope of an offspring. God says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you'll bring forth children. No, wrong bit. Verse 15. Oh, sorry, forgive me. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Do You see, um, God says to, to Serpent, who, who represents the created order here, he says, one day there will be a serpent crusher. One day there will be a redeemer who's going to restore the brokenness that, which has come about as a result of sin. So there you go. Creation is longing for redemption with humankind. And you see that in Romans 8, don't you? Creation groaning, awaiting its redemption. Now, this is where the story might get slightly unfamiliar because creation doesn't give up. Creation is longing for its redemption. And its hope is bound up with a man. And the man is called Noah. Look at chapter 5, verse 29. So Lamech, his dad, sings over his son. and says, verse 29, he called his name Noah, which means rest, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so the hope is, this is the guy who's going to redeem creation. This surely is the serpent crusher, the 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 redeemer of all creation. And, and it starts off very good for Noah. It looks as if he is that righteous, perfectly obedient redeemer. Every time he's mentioned, he's, we're told about his righteousness, his obedience, his obedience, his obedience, again and again and again. And so, um, God, you know the story. God, just, even though... Creation is, needs to be uh, wiped out, it needs to start again because, because of human sin. God says, I'm going to redeem creation through a man. And God sends to Noah uh, two of each animal and seven of each clean animal to be safe with Noah, safe with him uh, in the ark. And it's quite strange, we think that the key bit of the flood story is God saving the remnant, the righteous remnant, Noah and his family. But just look again at chapter 8 verse 1. Who is God remembering here? Look down, chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God is concerned to redeem creation. Just think about it. If God wanted to, he could have annihilated all of the animals and not bothered saving a remnant and then creating them ex nihilo, out of nothing after the flood. But he doesn't do that. He decides to save a remnant of creation with Noah. And so after the flood, um, Noah makes this sacrifice, this pleasing smell, smell goes up to God. And, uh, and God promises in verse, uh, in verse 21 of chapter 8. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. Even though the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and winter, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So human hearts haven't changed after the flood. They're just as wicked as before and yet God makes this promise to always keep creation ticking over as long as the earth remains. Violence continues after the flood. Sin continues after the flood. Various things change like we can now eat meat after the floods. Uh, The creation mandate is repeated after the flood. But here God institutes a new covenant, an unconditional covenant, not just with mankind, but with all creation. So look at chapter 9 and verse 11. Again, this might seem strange to you, God making a covenant with the inanimate earth. But he says, verse 11, I establish my covenant with you, Noah, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between you and me and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. Do you see, God is concerned to redeem creation with his Messiah. So is Noah the great Messiah then? No, he's not. Guess what happens? He goes into a garden. He does stuff with fruit and gets naked. Does that ring any bells with you? Sounds a lot like Adam, doesn't it? He does some stuff in a garden with some fruit and gets naked. Well, that's what happens with Noah. He falls in a massively Adamic fashion. And so we think, oh, maybe this guy isn't the redeemer of creation we were looking for. And yet God's covenant with creation still stands and so the search continues for the rest of the bible and of course you know chapter 12 the plot picks up with uh, with abram and god says in verse chapter 12 verse 3 all the families of the ground will be blessed through you so god is concerned to redeem creation it's all bound up with humankind so is no other guy no he's not who is then well, you know the rest of the story. We follow Abraham's line to the people of Israel, then to the line of Judah, and there's a king called David. Is he the Messiah? No. Is it Solomon? No. And then there's the exile. Oh, it's very disappointing. And in the midst of exile, or in and around that period, a whole bunch of prophets speak about the Messiah who would come, the Christ who would come to redeem creation. And because this is supposed to be a seminar, you're now going to turn to the person next to you, and you have a choice. You have an interactive moment to turn to the person next to you And you can choose either Isaiah 11 or Ezekiel 34 or Hosea 2. And you're going to look there, what is the Messiah going to do with creation? Okay, choose one of those, read it quickly. What is the Messiah going to do with creation? Okay. Hopefully you've seen, I don't know what passage you've looked at there, but hopefully you've seen that the plan for god 's king is not just to save his people but also to save the place in which his people inhabit. Uh, the king is going to bring peace to creation. He, god is a husband who 'll make a covenant with creation. you see all the all the promises of god 's covenant uh, with no, the Noahic covenant are fulfilled in, in in what this king would one day come to do um, hands up you 've read the the book Prince Caspian. I read it last year of my my, my kids they they loved it. And, and there's a, a, a particular moment um, when, uh, you might know the, the general plot line, it's about the, um, the Telmarines have come to Narnia and it, it's set in a period where the animals are no longer talking. The, the creation of Narnia is in disarray, the talking animals are no longer talking, humans are now in charge and it's a bit of a miserable place and all of the and old animals are in hiding. But then there's this young prince, Prince Caspian who comes along. He's from the Telmarines but converts over to the old Narnian side and and it's all very exciting. And I think uh, the badger says of him, this is the true king of Narnia we've got here. A true king coming back to true Narnia. And we beasts remember, even if dwarves forget, that Narnia was never right except when a son of Adam was king. See, Lewis Nues understood these prophecies. He knew our creation would only be right with the coming of a Messiah. And he, he weaved that into his story. And so that is the hope. Our Messiah, yes, he's going to come save people, but he's also going to redeem, he's going to be a cosmic redeemer. And so he, who is the who is the redeemer? Uh, the prophets prophets were talking about. Well, it's Jesus, isn't it? Um, hopefully you've, you've worked that out so far. If not, spoiler, it's Jesus. And uh, of course it is. And Jesus, we're not going to spend a long time in these New Testament texts, but Jesus did what Adam did not and could not do. He fulfilled the creation mandate. And places like 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 2, they're all quoting Psalm 8 saying, yes, Jesus is the one who managed to subdue the earth. He is the obedient one. He is the true gardener, in other words. He has come to redeem all of creation. Uh, Colossians is often one of those Bible books which we get, uh, read with uh, new Christians with, isn't it? And Colossians 1: 1, 1 to1,15 uh, to 20 talks about how Christ has come to redeem all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. not just human souls, all things. We have a cosmic redeemer. And the place you see this most clearly is in Romans 8. Would you turn there now? Romans 8. Paul writes, verse 18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is creation longing for here? What is creation longing for? Non-rhetorical question, shout out. The revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for people to be saved. Why? Why? You might think, well, that's a weird, weird thing for Paul to write. He's not really shown much concern for creation in the rest of the Romans. And out of nowhere, zip, this comes along. Why? Because he's understood what the whole sweep of the Bible story is saying. That just as creation fell with Adam, so creation will be redeemed through a second Adam for the benefit of all mankind united with him. And you see that even in Revelation, which we don't have time to go to now. So how does the Bible story end? Well, the world will not end, I'm afraid, as the Hollywood movies tell us it'll end. Um, all the disaster movies, all the uh, cli-fi films, I think they're called climate fiction, cli-fi, you know, climate disaster, extinction, so many films on this. Jesus is very clear how the, how the world's, world's going to end, not with climate disaster, nor with the meteor coming out and smashing us to bits. It's going to end with him returning. It's going to be a normal day in London. People getting married, people going to work, When Jesus returns. And we know that also from God's covenant with Noah. As long as the earth remains, sea, time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. God is keeping creation going until the Messiah can come. And one thing I may need to persuade you about is that the new creation we're looking forward to is this creation. Renewed and restored Jesus says, Matthew 5, the meek will inherit the earth. Not another earth, somewhere elsewhere, but this earth. He says in, later in chapter 19, he, he calls it the regeneration of the earth. Again, it is this earth. God is not going to destroy this earth and sort of make a brand new one right over here. No, it is this earth, radically renewed and purified. So one, uh, 2 Peter 3 is often a, a sort of a... A proof text for those who, who, who take that sort of Gnostic extreme. It's, it's, his big illustration there is the flood. It says, yes, the, the, the earth will be laid bare just as the flood. He's not, Peter's not imagining the world can being completely annihilated and then a new one being made in a completely different location. It is this earth, renewed and restored. Which is reassuring because that's kind of what he's going to do with us. When I meet Jesus, I'm not going to be annihilated and a brand different Andy Palmer's going to be made over there. It's going to still be me, hopefully a better me, hopefully a taller me. But, but it's still going to be me, radically renewed, restored, purified. So it is with the earth, exactly the same. And recreation is something only God can do. The new creation comes down out of heaven from God. It doesn't come up from us. So then, let's land this plane. I, I really want to spend uh, our last um, uh, good 15 or so minutes trying to understand this. I'd like to argue you should be concerned for creation. If you're here today and you said I'm only a one or a two out of ten, hopefully I persuaded you you should be higher on that number. <laughs> um, we should care about what God cares about. God calls creation Good. He loves what he's made. So should we. So let's beware narrowing down the redemptive scope to simply human souls. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. Um, Don't withdraw away from the creation mandate, thinking that your job as a nurse or working in a factory or mo- earning money in a bank in a city. Don't think that's worth loss or a complete waste of time because it isn't full-time gospel ministry. There is real value in what you do, in your creation and endeavours. It is good what you do because you're helping to steward the earth. It is a good thing that you're doing. Having children, this really shouldn't need saying, but having children is a good thing to do. It's not replaced by the great commission to go and, make, go and make disciples. It is good to have children in this earth. Um, I love that Rico Tice talks about this, but, but um, he, he argues that Christians should care more about creation than anyone else. So on his streets, the evangelist Rico Tice, he's known as the recycling guy. So whenever someone new arrives to his street, he's the first one to come along and he explains the complicated bin system which their particular area of London have. And he says, these are the color bins we use for this and these are the color bins you do for that. I'm the recycling guy. And also I'm a Christian. And isn't that a great way to say, I'm a Christian, therefore I care about God's creation. It also gives you a way in to talk to people about Jesus. Also valuable. Some might say, oh, come on, Addy, how can we care for this creation? It's also temporary. It's temporary. But no one knew this earth was temporary. And yet that creation mandate is still repeated back in the Noahic Covenant. I'm worried about Christians who argue the temporariness of the world means it doesn't really matter what we do in it. Because imagine we made that argument about our bodies. Imagine if I said, "Well, I'm going to go sleep with prostitutes because my body doesn't matter. Well, Paul argues against that point exactly in 1 Corinthians 6. The temporariness of our bodies doesn't mean that what we do in them doesn't matter. And so, what we do here matters. You'll be held responsible for what your decisions you make in this area. And also, I wonder if the, I, I'm going to put this out here tentatively, and you can shoot me down in the Q&A if you think, think it's wrong. Let's say I'm a Christian and I've just become a Christian. And before I was a Christian, i have been smoking 90 cigarettes a day, eating blocks of lard. I'm not looking after my body. I'm really unfit, really unhealthy. But I've become a Christian now, and I want to honour Jesus. And I realise part of honouring Jesus will mean looking after this body he's given me. And so me becoming a Christian will mean, you might argue, me starting to cut down the number of fags I'm smoking. And starting to do exercise and eating less blocks of lard. And you might see there's some incremental progress in my health be really weird if you came up to me and said, oh Andy, you're going to lose your body one day anyway. Carry on eating lard. <laughs> Carry on smoking, smoking 90 cigarettes a day. No, that's a crazy argument. As we become Christians, we can expect to see some progress. And I'd like to argue, as we take care of God's creation, we can accept, expect to see progress. In the areas where our, our, our earth is currently groaning, we can do something to relieve groaning, even if ultimately there's gonna be a new creation. But you might say, well, but to what extent should we be concerned for these creation things? You know, How much money, how much time, how much energy, how much effort should we put into this? How diligent should I be with my recycling? And again, we're not given commands. We're under grace, not law. But I hope you are, I hope the Spirit speaks to your conscience and you begin to take more concern about how much meat you might eat, how much long-haul flight flying you do. Um, think, am I being a good steward of what God has given? Good questions to ask. So yes, be concerned with creation. Hopefully that hits people on that side of the, the pendulum swing. But here's the thing. I think ultimately we need to be supremely concerned for mankind. Why? Because creation's bound up with mankind creation is invested in our redemption and so that means we should be invested in people's redemption too so that means kind of we need to make some pretty difficult decisions but guess what so did jesus i can think of at least four occasions where jesus had to make really difficult decisions between creation mandate and saving people's souls Um, There was a time when Jesus had to make a decision about this one poor guy who was possessed by a whole bunch of demons and 5,000 pigs. Jesus created those pigs. He likes pigs. Even though, as a Jew, he probably never ate any. But he loves pigs. But he said, he weighed the cost, went, you know what, this one man's life is worth more than the 5,000. So he had to make a difficult call. There's another occasion when Jesus came across a fig tree. Now, we know Jesus liked figs because he was annoyed when there weren't any figs in fruit. And so, what does Jesus do? He curses the fig tree. We think, why Jesus? I thought you created fig trees. You like figs. Why curse the fig tree? Why? Because he wanted to illustrate the fact that one day he's going to return to judge. And this fig tree was a brilliant illustration of that as he's looking over the Jerusalem temple. He chose to to use the fig tree as a warning because he wanted to prioritize saving people. another occasion, Jesus rebuked a synagogue leader for being willing to untie his donkey And yet not be willing to untie this poor woman who has this uh, crippling pain. He says there's a disconnect there. You should care more for the woman than for the donkey. Hard calls need to be made. And so again, the spirit will need to speak to our consciences about how we make those decisions about how to use our time, our energy, our cash. But I hope you're persuaded people won for Christ matters more. And personally... I've written a lot about this. i thought about a lot of this. I, personally, I don't give any money to environmental endeavors. Um, I, I give my money to, to, to gospel work for people who are going to be saved. Um, but I think that's a more efficient way of actually create, looking, looking after creation. My non-Christian friends are going to be giving to save the panda. I'm giving to saving people because actually, I think once you've made someone love Jesus, they're going to want to save the panda. and They're going to want to be more diligent. They're going to want to look after God's creation better. I think it's a far better use of your resources. I don't think it's wrong to give to save the panda. I personally don't. Because I think it's more efficient to save people. And creation itself is looking for salvation of people. The last thing to say here. Your creational activities, somehow they matter eternally. I don't know how this is, but it seems to be that what we do now with creation endures into eternity. There's some mystery here. I, I'm not quite sure how, how it works. Um, but um, I like this uh, story from Cornelius Van Til. He's a, he's a theologian. He argues this. Can you see this from the background? How good is your eyesight? Yeah, good luck. Though men do not recognize the truth about the world... They can, in spite of themselves, produce much culture. They cannot help but do so. They are like the rebellious sailor who tries to burn up the ship because he hates the captain. This sailor, instead of being thrown into the brig, is made to employ his gifts, whatever they may be, so that the ship may go forward to the harbor. When the ship arrives at its destination, all the fruits of this sailor's labor will be preserved. But... They'll be given to others, and he himself will be lost. What he has accomplished constructively will enter into the new heavens and the new earth for their adornment. He's, uh, he's riffing off this passage in Revelation 21. You might want to turn there, just the final verse for us to look at together before we have a bit of Q&A. And in Revelation 21, is a mysterious little bit of passage, which says, verse 24, by its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Something what the kings of the earth are doing now in, in helping steward the earth, helping bring forward culture, helping bring forward beauty, some of that somehow, mysteriously, is going to get transferred through to this new, redeemed, restored creation. How? I don't know. And yet that's what we're told. And so what does that mean for you as a nurse? What does that mean for you working in a factory? What does that mean working for you in, in the city or whatever it is you do? What you do has eternal value somehow. And, and so you shouldn't despise it. You shouldn't think this is a waste of time. If only I was telling people like Jesus 100% of the time. If you can do that, do that. But if you can't do that, you have great value in what you do. I'm going to stop there, so we have a bit of Q&A. One, turn to the person next to you, buzz for 30 seconds, and then if you've got a question, raise your hand, and there, uh, and then we'll go from there. Brilliant. Turn to the person next to you. Do wave at me if the person next to you has an excellent question, because if they're thinking it, so is someone else. I'm going to start with my sister here, and then go here. Hello. you're talking to non-Christians about this. So, for example, I'm talking to my friends. They're like, you know, we're past tipping points. We're using too many fossil fuels. We won't slow down in time. the yeah. warming up. Like you said, at the start, like, lots of people will suffer and are suffering, especially, like, unjustly in the mm. areas. And then the conversation sort of ends with, like, you know, it's too late. There's so much suffering. It's yeah. Great question. So how does this help us in our evangelism? Our non-Christian friends are concerned about this and they're they're pretty bleak and miserable about this. What can we say to offer hope? I I think try and get alongside them and agree with them. If we can get them to see that the big key problem is is humankind and uh, if we can get them to see that um, essentially it's, it's selfishness, greed and apathy, we are the problem. So the solution is how do we solve the human heart? What's gonna make us to act against our best economic interests In order to have a concern for the planet, what's going to help us to be sacrificial when actually wired into us is this selfishness? This selfish. Do you have a solution for that, non-Christian friend? No. Can I share what I think? I I think we need people's hearts to be changed. I think we need a saviour. I I know that by nature I'm quite selfish, looking after myself. What changed me? What makes me want to be generous and, and want to have a concern for other people, even people I've never met, who are in a floodplain somewhere in India? Is, is that I love Jesus because he gave himself for me. That's how I do it. I, I think I, I just identify the problem and then see that they don't have a solution. Education is not enough, is it? Yeah, this is my friend here. As a Christian, can you work in a job if you feel it's directly from the and say you work for a hypothetical Amazonian lumber company? Can you work as a Christian in an Amazonian lumber company? Or you know, or or or, some, or any job which explicitly goes against you know was obviously damaging uh, the the planet. Um, I, I I don't think we I can point to a verse and say you are sinning. So I'm not, I'm not sure I could say to the Christian you are transgressing God's revealed will here because you're working for the Amazonian lumber company. Um, but again, I I would want to question you know. I want to question. I'd want to help him through this material to help him come to that decision. I wouldn't want him to sin against his conscience if his conscience is saying, um, because the Holy Spirit revealed in all the scriptures saying, "Ah, oh, I really should care more for God's world." And if I could do something else, I probably should. Um, that's probably the way to do it. I wouldn't say you're a sinner because I, I don't. I can't show him that, but I could say, "I wonder if there's a you know better way you could use your gifts to to um, to help steward God's world instead of perhaps damaging it." Um, he may have nine children and this is the only job he can get and, and again he might be you know, your hypothetical friend in the Amazonian lumber company I'm adding more hypotheticals um, <laughs> very good I think that's probably the way to do it I think conscience is the issue we're not given law here we're given conscience uh, Holy Spirit speaks to it yes Thank you. So how, how, should we care, what should we, how should we relate to Christian organizations which um, have particular concern, for uh, creational concern, for, for environmental concerns, but don't have a explicit um, proclaiming the gospel sort of um, mandate, something like that? Well again, isn't it, I think um, a lot of the societies in Britain which have a concern for animals, the RSPCB, is that the birds? And then there's an RSPCA, which is animals. Um, they were created by and established by evangelical Bible-believing Christians, because they thought, "Well, hang on, reading my Bible, God really concerns about birds, doesn't He? Maybe I should too, and let's protect them." And that's a good thing to do. Um, I think as long as we're not fooling ourselves that, you know, we, we we're doing everything. Um, so the, way, the the way I put it in that in that central pendulum is that the Great Commission eclipses, but doesn't replace the creation mandate. I think it's good what RSPCA and RSPB are doing, even if they're now completely lost their evangelical origins. It's a good thing that they're doing, um, but I'm gonna be putting my, my money uh, in the Great Commission. And if I know there are Christians who work for um, in environmental things and, and, and write and publish, that's brilliant. It's not necessarily what, ch- what churches should be doing, it's not necessarily where money in churches should be put, Although I'd hope churches are making good green decisions about reusable cups and, and what pumper they're using and uh, heat pump they're using and things like that. Um, but I, I don't think we should treat them with suspicion or concern, or I think we should encourage them. I mean, I, wouldn't it be great if we had more Christians working in this field? Um, not necessarily what pastors need to be doing, but we need Christians doing it, definitely. Yeah. Sister. Wow, it's a massive philosophical question to uh, try and end our session with. Why, why are we physical creatures? God isn't. God isn't physical. God is spirit. What's the benefit of that? Uh, I'm not going to shoot from the hip on that one. I'm going to chew on it and give you an answer in five minutes. Because so what I say now will be terrible, and then I'll, I'll have someone like Andy Mason coming over and telling me I've committed at least nine Christological heresies. Um, so I'm not going to. I'm going to about. I'm going to have one last question, and then the sandman's saying I need to wrap up. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, so we often hear, don't we, that um, uh, overpopulation is, is a massive concern, particularly in parts of the world, and it's having massive environmental impacts. And so the greenest thing to do is to have as few children as possible. I, I've read lots of articles by that. I think Harry and Meghan said it's irresponsible <laughs> for anyone to have more than two children. Um, and I've, I've got to listen to Harry and Meghan and I've got to listen to what God says. And I think I'm going to go with God on this one. I, I think it's a good thing to have children. And um, we're not told however many one should have. We live in a post-contraception world now um, where we can kind of have an idea or uh, choose or how many children we have. Um, but that's a very recent invention. And so I'm nervous that we use it to steer our theology um, and... Um, but I'm nervous of anyone who would say it's morally good to have fewer children. Um, although I, I would take the point that, yeah, we are consumers. You know, we have to eat things. <laughs> we have to have heating. We have to have clothing. And that has an environmental impact. But I think as Christians, I think it's a good thing to have children. And a good thing to raise them in a knowledge and fear of the Lord and to lead them to have a concern. Um, and ultimately, we know this world's not going to end with climate disaster It's going to end with Jesus returning. And I think we hang on that promise. It's going to be a normal day in London. There's much more can said about that. And I take your point. I just want to yeah, put put the other point forward. I'm going to pray. And then we'll have more questions at the front. Okay, Father God, thank you for keeping us awake in this ridiculous heat. And um, we love you, Lord. And we love the fact that you've given us a beautiful physical creation to enjoy. And bodies to enjoy it in. And I pray, Father, you'll give us your Holy Spirit would speak to our consciences and help us to consider how we can better steward what you've given us, how we can better steward the gifts you've given us in order to have a concern for this world. But more more than that, Lord, how we can have a concern for the stewards of this world, people. We ask, Lord, that as a result of having this concern, we'd lead more people to know you, the Lord and Savior, the Creator. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed and are able to take away a few things to think about. Stay tuned for our last talk from Revive before we start the new season of our podcast on church planting here in London. See you next time.